The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everybody? Welcome into episode three of season four of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factory Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week, I'm interviewing drummer David Allsickinen of the band The Hooters. The Hooters are a Philadelphia-based band. Had a bunch of hits in the early 80s, a bunch of radio play and MTV hits. And they've had a steady career and a resurgence here lately. They are just now kicking off a European tour. I believe they're in Germany this week. And then they come back to the States to link up with Rick Springfield and do a bunch of dates all around the country. So this is a fun chat. We talk about his the, the entire breadth of his career from the beginning to taking a little bit of a break and getting into the technology field and then getting back with the Hooters. And let's get to it with uh, David Allsickinen. Every summer, we've been fortunate. We, 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 we've been going to Europe for since like, I think 2003. Um, we had a little break hiatus there and we got back and then every summer I think we've only taken a few took taken a few off we go over there and at least play in Germany and in Scandinavia a little bit um, but lately it's been turning into like a six week run wow so this year like you know I was out this morning uh, you know we had to get the carne together there's gear I, I work with a, a guy that supplies a, a, my, my gear there that's been I've been playing the same drum set for Oh God! Uh, I think uh, this same kit I've been using probably for about twelve years now. I've been using the same kit there, and uh, there's a company called All, All Access Cartage. My friend Rolf over there. So, but I send over uh, some symbols, and my, my my I use in you know the SPDSX and the the Pro. So I send that over, and uh, a few doodads that I like that I. I'm particular to on my kit, but then everything else stays there. But this morning I was, you know, making sure everything weigh, weighs enough. People don't think about that oh, yeah. and all that stuff. Like, can I bring this? I had this Constantinople symbol that I have, and I and that it's really nice that I had to kind of like I can't come on this trip, so I had to use another one. <laughs> so, you know, wacky stuff like that, but the, but uh, but it's it's exciting to be doing it, you know. But this year we do that and come back and then we do at least two months on the road in the U.S. Our first tour in, um, God, in, in three decades in the U.S. That's wild. Yeah. So I have a couple questions about that. Sure. So, so yeah. what do you think is, is kept things going in Europe for you guys? Uh, you know look <laughs> yeah i mean we we, we i think they, they they gravitate to especially uh like i i remember in 1987 uh no 86 uh the, the album nervous night uh we had a song called all you zombies and it in america it was on it got to aor radio uh, album oriented radio and it was successful and it kind of introduced us there was a, a DJ in Texas that played us, a guy named Redbeard. Other program directors started adding it to their format. It got all over the place. But it was never like a top 40 hit or anything like that. But it it, it, it got us uh, got us on the map, so to speak. That song in Germany was like in top n number three on the like their billboard charts. We were dumbfounded by that. Like, oh, obviously... In, you know, it was it was great, but couldn't believe it. You know, and uh, the follow up record, um, we did a record called One Way Home. There was a song on there called Johnny B. That is, I think, you know, I think it's about the the, the minor chords and the progression that that they listeners over there gravitate towards. But um, it's that song. A friend of mine told me if you get pulled over by a cop. Start singing the line, Joe, the chorus film. They'll let you go. <laughs> so I, I can't, it's hard to explain, uh, Mike. It's just, you know, it, it is just one of those crazy things. And listen, uh, you know, we've had records, we've experienced making records over here. They'll thought we would do something and it did nothing. And then like we, they do great in the little pockets of Europe. So we go over there. I, we, we made a record called Zigzag that was like they loved in Scandinavia, and we were playing that sound that sold out venues there that we, you know, that you know couldn't get a uh, anything going here with it. But wow. it, it's, it's hard to explain people's tastes. That's the way. Yeah, I, yeah. 
it's uh it's have unusual. you have you toured europe the whole time or is it was it more of a recent thing no we've been we've been going over there uh we we uh, i i remember as a baby band we, we we started doing arenas like opening for bands and having success and knowing things were going in the right direction and you, you go from playing to theaters to supporting somebody in like 20,000 seat venues and all of a sudden uh you you get uh, my, our manager said to us uh, you're going you're going to play in germany and you're going to play clubs oh man I, you know we were looking at each other man, we're just doing this thing and it, not that i don't want to say it was easier it wasn't easier but it, it was like we're going to smaller crowds although he was totally right it was it was the smartest thing we ever did because we built our fan base like we did when we started here in the, in the states in the 80s it was the same thing uh, but we were more of a well-oiled machine by that time. We got there and people would come see us. And uh, I, I think a lot of bands, like some of my favorite touring bands, Midnight Oil, who uh, 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 one of my favorite bands out of Australia, they, uh, they, you know, the same way. They would go out and they, they just, they're big in their country and then they would go and they play smaller venues and just try to blow it up. And in our case, it worked out. And then it just kind of built and built. We took, uh, I think, I don't know if it was really consciously, it's probably consciously, we, we had about a seven-year uh, break uh, when we all had kids, you know, to, you know, we all, we didn't plan it that way, because everybody had kids, and you just, you know, started having kids, and we stopped, and, and then, and like, 2003 was when we started, like, doing more stuff in Europe, and they were, again, offered, they were, obviously, we were getting offers to do dates, and, um, we we took them up on it we went and ever since you know we go over and um it's it, it we work we have great we work with a great promoter patrick he works with a bunch of other bands i know i know i think on his roster he had like snarky puppy donovan is one of his people and he just has a thing and he he's part of our family he knows what all of us really like how, what we need to tour he knows he just work hand in hand together and uh Every summer we've been going over, and then if there's some one-offs that we would do, excuse me, occasionally we'd come over and do those, which we were doing mostly. I mentioned that it's our first tour in three decades in the States. We'd play dates here, but it was more of like get on a plane or, you know, travel to a date and play. Uh, and it was never, this. in this case, we're on the bus like we're in Europe. From city to city, you do three on, day off, three on, day off, and it's all mapped out. I mean, we start uh, in the Midwest. Uh, at some point, we're up like in the Detroit area, that area, Michigan. We're playing in Texas, Oklahoma. We're doing six states in the West Coast. I mean, things that I was telling a friend recently that uh, we play in Europe so much that I remember just really wishing that I'd be able to go back to be able to do it in the States again. And then stars lined up and here we are. So what yeah. brought on this book in this tour? Rick Springfield's manager. Really? And Rob, I guess they connected and he's been out there doing these last year. He toured with uh, Colin Hay and John Waite and Rick, and they did this re really successful tour. You know, they, they, people buying tickets you know it's all about getting people out to the shows and um but it, it for them to do it when they were doing it it was right after covid or even you know as soon as things started to open up um i don't even know the guy did our gentleman's name but he he was the one that was instrumental you know putting it together that the idea was floated like anything else and you know rob who handles our business thought it was a, a cool mix of bands and then he ran it by uh i well in my case ran it by me and i think i heard about it in december late december you know i asked if i would be interested in going on the road you know i was like yeah was, you know the us of course and the lineup for this is rick springfield we played before rick paul young british guy singer great great artist um tommy two-tone at times the tubes i think the tubes might be on some dates i get to hang with my buddy prairie prince and uh and uh john Waite will join us 
once in a while. So I think it's 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 um, two months uh, of touring. So I think in in some cases that like, we break off to do our own shows. Uh, there's a week at the end of August where we have a couple of shows that we have booked where we'll break off and uh, the, the other bands have the same situation where they're doing that, you know, so uh, it's, 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 a, it's, it's like getting a bite of the apple again, man. It's, <laughs> it's cool. I can invite people that like I've been friends when I lived in the West Coast for 20 years. So they, they finally can come out and see this band. I talked about the Hooters, you know, it's, it's, uh, it'll be fun. That's amazing. Yeah, it really is. It, it, uh, it, 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 it really is kind of mind blowing that we get to do it again, especially, you know, we're, we're not 25 years or 30 years old anymore. <laughs> That's another factor. You got to go out and get in shape. Yeah. Have you been working out to prepare for it? Well, I had an interesting winter. I, uh, and I didn't realize, uh, uh, I, I had my gallbladder removed in January. Oh, wow. Totally. Like, I don't know if you've seen the movie. There's a movie, a Finnish movie out called Sisu. And Sisu is, is kind of, there's no real definition for it, but basically fortitude. And the film talks about, shows this guy that will never die. It's it, it's really pretty fascinating, interesting, and, and great, you know, visuals in the movie. Um, and uh, basically... I'm not saying that I won't die, but it, it for for a few years I was carrying this infected gallbladder around that I didn't I didn't know I just thought I was unlucky and I was getting food poisoning a lot. I traveled oh. and I was getting really sick. And if anybody out there or your listeners have ever had any issues with their gallbladder, it it manifests in a way that you think you're having like a heart attack. And 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 me, I was I went to the emergency and they found out that I had a had a gangrenous. Uh, <laughs> gallbladder they had to remove oh my gosh yeah it was it was bad it was bad i almost met my maker then and then, <laughs> fortunately did not i came through and three weeks later after i recovered i was working i recorded this record with those guys and really pleased with it because i knew you know i was getting wind that the music they were working on was back to our roots of playing reggae and ska which would made our bones as a band that's what we did when we first started and they were consciously going back to revisiting those to our song, through songs that they wrote. So when I went in the studio, um, the first song I cut with them was a song called Pete Rose, where we were paying homage to a ball player that we all really liked. Uh, we didn't always like his methods, like his, as far as playing, we did. He was, but I'm not making any judgments about Pete. Uh, and I did in the hall of fame. Let's go ahead and say, yeah, I, I, I believe that. Yeah. Why not? Of course. But I, I, uh, um, but that was the first thing I, I, I cut and everything else was just felt like it was in, a, it was a record where we felt that was all in our wheelhouse. Hmm. It was so much fun to play. And, uh, and it, and, and it's turned out, it's starting to get some ads at radio. And the thing that we're hearing most is that, it's a great summer record and uh, was, well, I honestly, and uh, this is coming from Rob and Eric to their same they didn't intentionally go out to do it. It just, things worked out, you know, we, we, we've been a band together that's been together for 40, 43 years, long time. So it's, it's uh, sometimes you have, you have hit hits and misses, you know, and we've had our misses. It just, sometimes everything lines up, stars line up. And, you know, the record's released at the right time. Uh, you, you get offered a good tour. Just the, the right things happen. Uh, that could go the other way, too. And in this time, it just seems like, you know. And at this point, we're all, we're, we're all tight. We're, we're, we're a family. We're, we circle our wagons when anything goes awry. And, uh, and we're just going to enjoy the shit out of it. Mm -hmm. you know? Just go with it and have a blast. You know, play drums. Uh, a couple buddies of mine, uh, jo George um, Plesius, who plays with Rick Springfield, uh, great drummer. Uh, when I first moved to LA, he was working for Drum Paradise, the the uh, the people that uh, do cartage, set up drums for sessions and stuff like. He was my guy. Mm. He show up. I did the Tonight Show once with Patty Smythe, and he was setting up my drums. I did this Alice Cooper record. He was setting up my drums. Now I'm his support act on a tour. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's funny how that works. And he's my bud, and I'm, I can't wait to hang with him. We've been talking to you. We found out we're touring together. Like kids, man. We're like, dude, do you believe we're going to be on the road? I get to get coffee with him at every show and talk about how his day's going. It's uh, That's one of the unique, cool things that uh, we get to experience at times that are just really very, very special. To yeah. Being a, being a musician, touring, it's very cool. What did you do during those times, besides raising a family, during those yeah. years when the band was somewhat inactive? Uh, well, I... I, I I, I was doing this, I worked for a technology company. Um, oddly enough, I was doing a session for an attorney uh, that was a songwriter. I don't know if you're, there's some, like, everybody has their little side gig. His side hustle was writing songs. And he, he uh, I was living in San Diego and um, I died. A friend of mine was producing. It wasn't like LA where there was a ton of work going on around. Uh, but he would use me on his things that he was producing. So he called me up uh, to do a session for a guy named Rod Underhill. And he was a t an attorney for this company called mp3.com. Hmm. And this is 1996, I believe. 1996, was all the time with broadband, internet, all that kind of thing was like, you know, just ready to burst out. The world was going mm -hmm. to change to this thing. And uh, so I do this session for this guy and he starts asking me about uh, uh, just almost grilling me about music and we we're talking about genres and music and things like that. And I guess I, I, you know, passed his test, but I didn't realize he was interviewing me for a possible offer to go work for the company. But he invited me to um, uh, meet his, the guy that eventually became the CEO that started this company. And this, I walked into this office in San Diego where there were seven engineers and there was a hard drive, a big, big looking hard drive back then where they were, you know, I mean, at one point they were the size of refrigerators and maybe bigger, but this thing was about a foot high and about six inches wide. And he said, I got 150,000, 150,000 songs in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, think about it. this is like now people go, yeah, what's, what's the big deal. But back then I'm going like, how do you, how do you fit them in there? How do yeah. you, <laughs> how do you get them in there? Like, I can't get those CDs in there. So, you know, he explained, sort of explaining to me about MP3s and digital files. And I didn't know anything about any of that, you know. Um, long story short, um, I, I showed enough interest in it that, that uh, and a, a week or two later, uh, they called me up and asked me if I wanted to come and help them uh, manage the music side of things. Uh, because they were engineers and they, they they were getting the music in, but they didn't know how to identify what they had. Mm. And um, and they hired. Um, it was it was great because I, I got some lifelong buddy, buddies of mine that are the guy Eckstein, Billy Eckstein's son, the great jazz singer. Guy oh, Eckstein guy. Was, handled the jazz, mm. and uh, 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 Sam Wick was the alternative guy. He worked for Rick Rubin. A bunch of music guys put together that this technology company. We're like, kind of look, we're all looking at each other like, well, what are we going to do? So we, we started identifying pop pools of music. It was really pretty fascinating stuff. Now, mind you, I had a Power Mac Power Book back then. And basically, I could do is I could open it up, I could send an email, and I could do barely anything else. <laughs> and then, you know, but then I started working with engineers and working groups of, uh, 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 you know, the matrix groups. And it was like very, uh, it was educational in a lot of ways. And I paid attention. It's where I got the idea to, to, um, working at that company. I, I have this website. It's called Davey Drums, Davey where people can hire me to do a session. And when people hire me, they don't, they don't call they do send an email and they have a they have a ticket where they'll write down what they want how many bpms or whatever uh any if they want to write chart they want to give me the chart but it was all based on what we call bugzilla tickets that were a bug ticket for a for a company so basically um the guy that designed it for me we use that as his his uh 
you know, that was the way he, you know, he's going to start this company. They're not talking to anybody. And they, they message you, they message you and give you the information through this. But I worked for this company for, I know, I'll give you a long-winded answer here. I, uh, but I did it for, for five years. They were, they were great because I was still playing music too, playing in bands, doing some sessions. I even went on tour when I was there. They, they, they said, you can go out, uh, this is when things were going to get, we got broadband and things were happening, but uh, I did that. And all along, like, you know, we, I, I did plenty of side hustles mm. uh, coming up uh, in between when we weren't doing anything because I had a family. Mm. And I always had to think about, uh, you know, putting bread on the table and, and all that kind of thing. And and I couldn't very well lay around and do nothing. And I, and I went and moved down to San Diego from L.A. And L.A. was... You know, you could work more in L.A. Uh, you could fall into work in Los Angeles at the time. And um, in San Diego, it wasn't quite as simple. So you had to really know who you were talking to. And But I found other things to do, but always connected with music. Mm. Like, that was a good thing. Uh, anytime I was doing anything else, uh, it just didn't feel feel right, and I felt like I was a fish out of water. If I because you know I, I almost felt like I was stealing money if I was doing something else, mm. uh, and I didn't I could I couldn't sell it very well. You know I was always uh, uh, it had to be have you know I had to have the integrity at least to know what I was doing. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, yeah. So what what was your background in music? It sounds like it's a lifelong. Pursuit yeah. for you. So what? What yeah. got you into it, and and what's your educational background? Like? My dad, my dad, my dad, the carpenter, roofing siding guy. Love came over from Finland in the fifties and loved Louis Armstrong, loved Harry James, loved Gene Krupa. And you know, got me to meet Buddy Rich when I was eleven years old. You wow. know, my dad was my hero to this day. Rest in peace. And. Uh, um, but he was, he, you know, he came over from Finland wanting to give me a better life. His family, because I had two sisters too, and and his and my mom, um, he, he was the, you know, just introduced me to. I mean, and sometimes I made the wrong choices as a kid. I, I still remember he offered. He said, "Well, we're, we're, let's go see Duke Ellington tonight." I said, "No, I'm going to go build a fort." <laughs> perfect answer for a kid you know what I mean I was, I'm going to build a fort but he got me into it and um, and and it was young I was young and he was into jazz and um, had jazz records um, he wanted me to play the trumpet when I was a kid and I got a trumpet I thought I broke the trumpet because I didn't order oil the valves right I didn't break the trumpet <laughs> uh, but um, you know that's what we were listening to, and then I saw the Beatles and the Stones on TV, and and I got in a, a band. I mean, we m my education was I had a I could play a drum beat. I was the guy that could like probably like you that could sit down drums go that 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 could play that, and mm -hmm. no one else could play that, and you had the coordination to do it. So you were holding down the beat. I tell a buddy of mine is in the school band. Like, I would do a group of drummers, and I remember the band leader said, uh, I want you to play the bass drum. Point at me. I want you to play the bass drum. And all the guys goes, oh, well, you must not be able to play a good snare drum. I said, no, he's got me because I'm going to play in time. Right. I can't play in time. <laughs> I was the guy, boom, boom, keeping them in, locked in. I never thought about it until later. I said, yeah, it makes sense. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, I, 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 you know, I was playing, and I, I came up where – yeah, I had local teachers. Um, I was, you know, grew up in Levittown, um, in Levittown, and there was a music store, Clyde Peter School of Music, and there was a, there was a, uh, uh, you could go there, take a lesson. I would go every, I think on Saturdays I would go, and a guy named Bill Weichel would take a lesson with, and I, and, and I think I, you know, some days I, sometimes I would take some periods off, but I, I went to lessons quite a bit that was it and uh played in my groups my bands we had bands and then when i got into high school <clears throat> the drinking age in new jersey was 18 when i was in high school and kids in high school were getting like underage they were getting cards to go over to new jersey and there was bars and uh, friends of mine were like where well, i was playing underage over there and i was doing that uh um and i 
<laughs> I think I made like 300 bucks one week, you know, I was like, this is 1974. And I went, Oh God, this is what I'm, I'm rich. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I did that. And, um, early on, uh, I, my, my parents spent a lot more time in New York than they did in Philadelphia when I was coming, when we were kids, I had a great aunt that lived there. So for me to, <clears throat> we'd either drive up to New York or I'd grab a train and take it to New York. So I used to just take the train and go up to 48th street, 46th street. And Joe Casadas had a, a place called the modern drum shop up there. And, uh, I, I would go, I would go to his shop. Well, the, the very first day I went and I saw him, cause I used to have click, like now people are going to the internet and they're seeing you and they're going to, they, you know, you're the guy, but I, <clears throat> I, uh, I collect these Slingerland magazines, and I remember it was uh, Gene Krupa, Buddy Rich, Brett Deems, and Joe Casadas. Remember the first few pages, and uh, for some reason, I, I always remember what Joe looked like—that uh, little mustache, and he, he, he had a sinister stare, and uh, he—he. He, um, I walked into the shop. I think it was on Forty Sixth Street at the time, and he's in there putting the sticks in the little cubby holes. And I said, are you the guy in the Slingerland magazine? He said, uh, yeah, that's me, kid. And I said, you give lessons? He said, yeah, be here next next Saturday, 11 o'clock, 25 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked, I, I, I don't even know if, I think I might have been, probably been by myself, by myself. And I'm thinking to myself, 25 bucks, and I live in Levittown. I got, it means I got to get the train. I figured it out in my head, but I said, yes, I'll be here. I'll be here. And then I, I just started showing up and, you know, right away where, you know, with Joe he used to sit down at a pad, you sat, he sat next to you at the old real field pads and we would do the buddy rich book open and we would do what he called closed. You buzz style and open. And mm-hmm. we would do that. And with Joe, I got other buddies of mine to study with him. <laughs> One guy was saying, yeah, that 25 buck thing he remembered. But, um, and I went to him for a few years and he had that shop and it moved, I think, three different places when I, uh, over the years. And he was just such a, uh, I, I don't know. He, he was, the, he was the guy that I remember I was, the Hooters got together and we were playing a lot. And I showed, I still went to my lesson, whether I did my lesson or not. Usually I did my lesson, but this one week I, I just couldn't find enough time to practice to read my, my whatever we were doing and i remember he got really pissed off at me like he, i think he might even hit me with a stick oh, yeah, <laughs> the old yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> said, man don't waste my time they'll come up here i said well but i played six days we said i don't care i don't care if, if, if about that he goes don't don't waste my time in there and it was, it was so valuable to hear them say that because he didn't for me i was like he, he didn't care it was like a you know, you grow up, man. You show up if you're paying for it. You got to come do it. But you know, he was the guy. Like he meant so much to me that I remember when we first got our first platinum gold record. He, you'd go into Modern Drum Shop. He'd be sitting there. Mm. He loved that, and I, you know, he was just so great. And he wrote that great book, the the cross sticking book, Joe Casadas, the triplets and around the kit. And uh, uh, he was he a real legend. But that was it, you know. I I took lessons, and now I'm I'm still taking lessons, you know. I'm I'm young guys, my, you know. My, I I I have uh, guys that I go to that help me. That usually go to the like drummers collective, or or you know take lessons from these guys, and then I get the lesson from them. Mm. <laughs> you know, because I, I you never stop learning. Well, of course. I mean, I was just practicing stuff I thought I'd I do know. this morning. It's like, I, I bet you were. I'm sure. <laughs> it goes, keeps going. Yeah. yeah, man. I admire that about you. That's great. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instrument, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. 
Stop by the storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. So was the Hooters like your first band that was working? Like, was that your first time you you became a professional drummer, quote unquote? Well, no. Actually, the Hooters, by the time I got in 80, like I was, I started like when, as soon as I got out of high school, I was like, I got, I had a band that we were playing like the Jersey bar thing. But then uh, my buddy, Steve Shive, great drummer in Levittown. Uh, he still lives there too. He's still, he's still a great drummer. Um, he started playing with this guy up in Woodstock, a guy named Tim Moore. Uh, what was this? Tim's word on second Avenue, but he was, Tim was making records and um, he got this gig, but he was in this band called Sundance. John Mulhern was the leader of this band. It was a seven, seven or eight piece band, but rhythm section, piano playing, a horn section. I'm playing rock and roll, but this band plays Earth, Wind and Fire, uh, Joe Samples band. I forget the name of Joe Samples band that he had back then, but he did Stevie Wonder, uh, uh, Earth, Wind and Fire, uh, the Commodores. I went from like, and I, I went to, went from playing Led Zeppelin and Humble Pie to playing hitting horn and, and tower power stuff like going to mm. okay uh oh i mean i gotta i got it was, it was just a whole new level of like how the how to play and think and steve was playing that really great so he 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 recommended me uh to john when he got the gig he said i noticed young dude dave call him and uh uh and i i started playing with them i did i think i played with them for about a year that that was like because that band, I remember we had, we used to play all the, probably too young to remember this, but there used to be these places called the Duke, Duke's Pubs. They were all over, there were, there were, I think about 10 of them. And they were all over like some Delaware Valley, New Jersey, almost up to New York. And we were playing those places. They were, they were, there was a six, there was six days a week you played, six nights a week from eight to one thirty. And then some nights on weekends, we'd go to Heinella Inn and we would play after that. So I'd get home at like 6 a.m. in the morning. Wow. But I did that. It was like boot camp for a musician. Mm -hmm. Guys that are doing that now, you know, but I remember doing that. And then after that, I have a, a buddy of mine who got some kind of deal going with RCA. His name is Danny DiGennaro. Unfortunately, he passed away, but he was a bit of a legend in the Bucks County area. And he got a record deal with the guys at... Uh, uh, RCA and uh, well no he didn't get a record deal he had some sort of production deal with a guy named Ray Hall there and he grabbed me and this guy John Kuzma and Bobby Woods and Dan Souza, musicians that we were like playing around together in this band to go and record with him so we put this band together called the Torpedoes uh, that was uh, uh, a band that was we were playing some cover stuff but we were really trying to get a deal uh back then it was it, it was so different back then because we we had a goalpost was like get a deal we'll get a budget and we'll be able to make records for a while and see what happens um but that that was the, you know i had like a lot of a lot of experience trying to get from you know that place of playing bars the next step of making records and to go on tour you know you, you could actually see it and that's when you know, when all the record companies went kaput uh years later i i felt bad for the young musicians because it was you know although they had the internet to kind of level the playing field a little bit that record company thing was always a a, a place of i know this sounds crazy safety because you could go there and you're going like you got the a and r guy fighting for you to get a budget to make a record you know you, you, your your lifespan was looked at in short you know like okay two years of i can work you know because i got a record deal and you got some sort of budgeting going on you know uh, but then you you'll find out later you got to pay all that stuff back mm. <laughs> you know I mean? but but i started doing it like i i knew all about that when the hooters uh started playing and but we went a whole independent route we we for five years when we got together in 80 mike to 1985 we we didn't even want to we didn't even want a record deal we made our own records mm. uh, those guys were had a band called baby grand that were with arista 
and and Clive Davis signed them. And uh, they were, I mean, Rick Morata was the drummer on the record. Dave Prater, who produced Dream Theater, was their live drummer. He ended up becoming their drum. I mean, they were really incredible players. They would do like a lot of odd time stuff, but mix it with almost with a pop melody. It was it was very interesting. But people would go see them and they didn't know what it was. Mm. And Eric and Rob afterwards, they lost their deal. They that's when they put the Hooters together and and uh, they met me and then we started messing with these different feels. But the one thing we that I just found out recently where Rob, we played a gig and he he uh we played the gig. It was one of our first gigs, and he went to himself, this is going to work. I think this is going to work. Because people were, the way they were, you know, you, you could tell. You see how people reacted. And he's, that's the one thing cool about playing, when you play live in front of an audience, people say, you know, uh, would you rather be studio or you're live? And I'm going like, the one thing about live, you know right away if you're hitting a you're hitting a single or double or triple or home run. You know, mm. you know how people react. You know, so um, that was always a cool thing. But I... I think I was probably in like doing the, the professional thing from from you know uh, uh, from the time I got out of high school till I became a member of the Hooters, which was uh, just kind of lucky being in the right place at the right time. Well, who are your biggest influences? Like you said, the the band started with a reggae ska kind yeah, of song, yeah. So. Well, that that was kind of introduced to me, and then just being it, it felt comfortable to play. But early on, you know, like uh, I met Buddy Rich when I was 11 years old. So, you know, I initially, like I played drums, I was playing like, I was playing, I was playing like, like, I was playing like this is the way I played. I didn't know if I was doing, but I remember I seen Buddy playing like that. So I'm, I'm going to play like that. So mm-hmm. that's the way I did. But then, I, of course, I saw Ringo and, and Charlie and Charlie go back and forth from that grip. But they were my initial, um, I love Dave, the Dave Clark Five too. I was a big fan of the Kinks, McAvery. Um, I mean, I can I can sit with guys that listen to that music, love, and talk with them for hours about the records that you know. Uh, I was almost devastated to hear that Bobby Graham and Tim Catini, these two session guys in 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 uh, England, were playing on some they were like they how they were the how blains like you know the like guy finds out like a, you know a hundred of the favorite records you have are one guy on drum right, yeah. right how well in england it's two it's bobby graham or tim Catani. they were the guys that were playing on the records uh uh ray davis used bobby graham to play on on so, but but mick avery's was a great drummer i saw mick play in person we played a show with the kinks and mick was drumming in 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 Denmark, and I saw him play. Um, brilliant! He was he was he was great. But those early drummers, um, you know, and 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 like when I, I was in, in high school, uh, late like 70, 72, 73, 73, 70 to seventy four were years that I think were real transitional years in music for young people listening. And Carl Palmer was coming up. Bill Bruford was coming up. Jethro Tull. I like to love the drummers in Jethro Tull. Uh, uh, they were all like amazing. Um, but then, then something happened, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, I started listening to Jeff Picaro. You start, there was a movie called FM. I don't know if you ever, there's a no. great movie called FM. And I remember, um, there were there weren't a lot of places like you know you were listening to either FM radio or or you know you're buying records there weren't I I didn't have a lot of other than like Rolling Stone magazine tastemakers that I listened to you got to listen to this but I just went to see this movie one day and I remember the song FM came on through the through the movie theater speakers and and uh, uh, it was Picaro playing this groove. And it was like, oh my God. I mean, you could hear every like the symbol, this the way just it's just fluid, beautiful drumming. And uh so yeah, he he was big Jim Keltner. Um it did just it, you know, I could go I could go on for on forever about drumming. I, I love Carmen Apice or Carmen Apice, it depends how you want to say it. But him and his brother Vinny were our big, big influences on me on rock and roll drumming. And then Tony Williams, I play yellow, I play yellow drums because of 
was a Tony Williams. You know, I went to see it. He'd do that three floor Tom thing with the black dots. Yeah. Up and I, I was just like, I, I, I still remember I went to Temple campus and Tony walks out and he's playing with Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter, uh, Ron Carter. And, her, and Tony walks out to the drums. And the first thing he does, he sits behind the drums and he's got three, three toms, floor toms. And he's got the two toms up there. And he starts out by the, you know, and he's playing like that. And he's going, just, just so beautifully. just, And everything sounded like the tone of the drums. Everything was just, and I'm way out in the, out like, I mean, I wasn't close to the stage. And I remember I felt like I felt every note. Mm. And I said, um, and I knew it went that I knew it was Tony. But if anything was going to get me closer to Tony, I said, I'm buying that Gretsch kit. I went up to New York. I went to Alex's music and I bought that Gretsch kit because I, at least I could think about him when I played the drum. <laughs> if I didn't sound like him, you know, it's like, it's funny. I mean, I do. I don't know. You know, it's like why guy, buy, guys buy Ludwig, you know, kits one up, one down, Ringo. Yeah, <laughs> or, yeah. you know? But, you know, there were so many guys. And now I have a the guy I taught when he was a kid who is now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, his name is Elon Rubin. And I oh, keep yeah. he's one of my favorite drummers, man. I, Incredible, I, yeah. Like, I, you know, I, I, I taught him, he does this little riff. I see him do it, a paradiddle, a paradiddle, a paradiddle, where he turns it around, goes, you're left, what Joe showed me. I showed it to him. And I remember, I still see, watch him do it. And he yeah. does it so beautifully, man. The guy's like a monster. Yeah, so I got so many guys that you can see that are just just brilliant, taking the art to another level, you know. So, it, so it, when you saw Tony, would that have been when the Hooters was already a band? I don't think we were. I, I No, we weren't a band yet. We, I think it was, I was two years away from that. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. But I was using that Gretsch because I was using that Gretsch kit. I, I just posted a video of us playing a song called Trouble in Paradise with two members that aren't, you know, I mean, we've been around long enough that two of our members aren't even with us anymore. When we were doing the ska thing, I was playing that yellow, you know, I'm like the scrawny kid behind the drum. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm playing that yellow kit. And, uh, and uh, yeah, man, <laughs> you know, Tony Williams was the guy. Uh, and, and as far as when you asked about the ska reggae thing, I, 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 that was Rob Hyman that started turning me on to records. And I started listening to the English guys, like the Carl, Carlton Barrett, all the guys like Bob Marley's guys and Sly Dunbar, Robbie Shakespeare. You know, they were the obvious guys to listen to. But then there was this whole British ska and the two-tone thing. But the reggae thing, there was a band from England called Steel Pulse that had a drummer named Grizzly. Mm. was such a beast. We play, we opened for them, and I could not. I was so drawn to him drumming because he was just he planted himself, and it was like felt. And the bass player in reggae, you know, he's playing around that groove, and he has always say it's a really cool thing to watch and feel. But this guy was so dynamic and so powerful, and he, they called him Grizzly because he was like a bear, and he guy, and he would do this stuff that was. Phenomenal. So, yeah, you know, and uh, yeah, it was a lot fortunate to see, see some really great players play that kind of thing. It's cool. Let's talk about the making of the new record. Uh, yeah. You said the guys were, I guess, writing on their own and then they presented the stuff to you. I mean, how do you get to the finished product? What was your process? Well, this one was interesting because it was going to be usually I come in and I'm on the early, I'm cutting the tracks with them, but I had my my surgery and it was going to, it was going to, you know, it was, it was, I remember I, well, New Year's Eve, I played a gig with, uh, there used to be a band there was, there's a touring called Bow Wow Wow and Annabella. I did a New Year's gig with her and I wasn't feeling well. It was like, it was starting to really get really bad. And uh, I did, but I did that New Year's gig and uh, a week after New Year's, I, I, I had to get an emergency ward because of the um, IU, because the EU, I'm sorry, the EU. Um, is that what it is? Emergency, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> you're not doing well. And um, 
so they, it was a week after I did that gig and, uh, uh, um, and I knew I had this record to do because they were finishing up and they had enough songs. And the plan was we were all going to go and cut together. Well, uh, I had to, I, I had the surgery on the seventh. I think I started recording the record three weeks after that. Like I, I was still wow. recovering, but I could play. And they were like, come on in to see, we want to try cut track. So I cut in, I, there was a song called Pete Rose on the record, which I, they end up putting nowadays because of technology could do certain things. You know they could cut the tracks. Uh, this interesting. This record is 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 interesting. This uh, what what they did was they there were some tracks that on this record that were recorded like years ago that they needed to, they had and we recorded on the Porter Studio that we transferred to Pro Tools. So we were kind of re redoing some things. So I came in. I cut the drums afterwards, mm -hmm. which you can do now, you know, like back in the day, you know, you had to kind of go through a lot of, I mean, you know, Pro Tools and Logic and things like that, any of the digital um, is is made it a lot easier to to go in and do things, you know, turn it around. So, uh, but it, it, they already had like a good head start on it. And I just come cut the drums out later, which... I like you do probably a lot of sessions, you know, you understand you go and drums are there, you go and you play. And so it wasn't, it was a different kind of energy, but it, 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 it was fun to do. We have horns on it, like great horn section. There's a song called, we did a cover of a Rolling Stone song called connection. That was great to play and, and get back to those scar reggae roots that we have. And it, it, it all felt good. It didn't feel weird. Although at the time I thought, uh oh, <laughs> it was like a, it was a different way of doing it, but it worked out. And they're they're my they're my they're my boys, my friends. I've been friends with them forever, so you know the, they have an expectation of me as if like I do of them to bring it. What am I playing on? But uh, but they were they were they were kind. <laughs> mm. They were kind. I, I mean, three that. weeks after surgery, goodness. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, you see, you see, you see the movie Cecil. It'll explain everything. British mentality is, uh, you know, but it's, it's, it, you know, I'm glad I have it. <laughs> now you mentioned you used the Rolling Kid on some of the record. I did. I use. Uh, matter of fact, I have it. Like you're right now, and if you can see, you're. I got my. I got this kit that I'm using on on the U.S. tour, and I have a Rolling. I have the Rolling. Uh, uh, I just got the uh, the the X the V V fifty X, but I used the TD twenty seven, um, and uh, yeah, I used that on about half the songs. You know, we USB right into the box. Uh, you know, real great engineer that knew what he was doing. So yeah, that was pretty neat. And but we went to pretty much conventional like old school sounds eight oh eight nine oh nine. You know that kind mm -hmm. of. Thing. Uh, we didn't, our, our idea was that like those songs were, we were, if they were demoing it up and they're doing it on an 808, it sounded cool on a 808, leave them that way. So if I'm going to play on a, if I'm going to play on a, a electronic kit, um, the cool thing I like about these rolling kits right now is they look like drum sets now. Mm -hmm. but, I mean, it's not like you're playing on pads and we're not an issue with that, but I like to be able to look down. It looks like a drum set. I just feel like, okay, I'm in my element. Um, but the sounds are sound like, like an 808 drum, drum machine, which, uh, I, I, I really dig. I really dig that. So live, are you, you said you're taking an SBDS out to get some of those sounds. I, and it's funny. I, I'm having, I, matter of fact, I just sent a text out to the rolling guys, uh, because I got the new SBD X pro, um, and you can't that it won't accept anything you have to have samples that have or, or 48k you, they won't accept a 44 one sample wow. so I, I i yeah it's great i bought the i bought the the i got it thinking oh it's going to be easy you know i have everything backed up just dump it into my new pro well when i went to do that nothing was happening i'm going what's going on oh, no. so i reached out to all my electronic guru friends are going like what's happening because oh it's not compatible so you can convert all your samples that you have from your spdsx se which i have 
to 48 and so from 44 1 to 48 and then you load them in uh but it wasn't even so uh, i i i backed it up and my issue right now is that um it's it's um, I, I just hit up the rolling guys. I'm having, I have to like, figure out how I extract them from a folder that is a, uh, it says SPD uh, I on it. So I'm, you know, it's a little mm. bit of that. I've learned to be patient and not like, oh, like what the, it's broken. It's not broken. You just got to get to figure out why it's, and it's there. The samples are there. You just got to, you got to figure it out. And it's, uh, uh, if anything, from working for those, engine working with those engineers in the technology companies that you learn to be patient and there's there's a, there's an engineering solution to it all mm. you know? and that's sometimes drummers don't want to <laughs> don't <laughs> no. hear that shit <laughs> right so are like you going to play the pad itself or do you hook up I, yeah yeah I, I'm, i'll probably trigger a couple few things a, a few a few things and uh i i use it uh uh you know, I, I put some samples in. I mean, I can't, I handle, we do 85% of our shows on click. So I use that, that kit chain that they have in the, in the, mm. in the role. And it's so valuable because there's, I think there's more in the pro. I know in the SBDSX, there were, you had five places where you can put in a, you know, a set list and you can, you move it quicker, but they've improved that. And I believe there's more in this new one. But um, I have all the tempos. And on tour, sometimes we'll change maybe a tempo by, you know, go real quickly and, you know, we've got to move it up one BPM or, you know, even a half a BPM. You can do that. Um, there were some limitations, though. You know, on the click, I found that uh, 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 on the SPDSX, I couldn't find like a, 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 a triplet, triplet, triplet click, like dot, 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 dot. It was all like, you know, eighth notes or 16th notes or quarter notes. So, but I think they fixed that in the pro, which I'm going to find out soon enough, but I heard they have. And, uh, but uh, it, I, I, I love that thing because as the guys in my band have gotten, uh, should I say, older, <laughs> they want more consistency, um, vocal vocals to be as consistent as possible every night um when we're younger you know you have that you know it's just you're younger and you can swing a little deeper i guess and you know now it's like we're 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 pretty much and, and it was weird playing live to a click for a while for me you know it's like mm. we went from this live band with reckless abandon playing and all of a sudden okay I'm going to, we started off part of the show on the click now to like 98% of it being on the click now. And I handle it with my foot. If it's too ugly, I mean, I'll, I'll kill it and we'll go. I mean, we can play with it, but it's, it's a nice thing to have. And I like playing with it live. Do you, how do you monitor that? Are you running it into, are I you running straight out of the headphone jack or do you run it out? I, I got my in-ears. I, 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 matter of fact, I, I use future sonic in-ears. Marty, Gar Marty Garcia. He is, he's amazing. He started doing this 1980, was it 19, it was in 86, June, Live Aid. I was the only drummer using them, which oh, wow. is unbelievable. Everybody was using monitors. And if we, did, if I didn't have these on <laughs> Live Aid, I don't know what our career would be like. <laughs> I used to, because I was playing across, I wasn't, it wasn't behind, I was across the stage. And we opened with all you zombies. And Rob, in the beginning, there's this riff, da, 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 and he slides into the downbeat. I saw him slide, and I could barely hear it. But I, Marty, that day, I, um, I, 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 I had a choice. I took the wedge, but I also hardwired into a mixer behind me with my in-ears because i it didn't sound great back then but i at least could hear what the keyboards were doing so um yeah if i didn't have that that downbeat might have been started on like like somewhere in the universe rhythm but fortunately i had them but i'm i that's what i do i i those guys are all using wireless packs in them my band um i use um i use a, a little allen and heath a mixer that I great. I just label it and I have the click coming through one I, a channel at the Roland. And then I have the drums coming through with the band on the other two channels. Mm. And uh, it, it works great. And matter of fact, I just got uh, a new set. These are the ones I've had for a while. They're, they got this little cool little clear 
uh they're cool looking and i like them and then i got a i got a new set that's coming next week and uh they're they're fantastic i've tried a lot of different uh you know people say well you know these are better than that but what i love it's one single driver in that in more in future sonics in-ears but they're so clear like i get enough bottom end but what i like like having is that mid-range a little bit that top like when you're hitting like symbols and you know, it, you can get all that. I, I think they're amazing. I think they're really amazing. He does such a good job. He's been doing it so long. He just got an award from NAM uh, at the NAM convention. And uh, he, he does, uh, you know, because I don't think I'd be touring if I didn't, I, 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 if I didn't use those. Because when I go up and I play like big stages, I've never had to do like a couple gigs where it, and it's just so much is a cacophony of sound. It's just too crazy i like to be able to hear what i want to hear wow, so great. uh yeah it's it, it, it it's it's it, it it's changed things a lot springsteen like I, I went to see um springsteen i thought they were all going to use the ears and only a few of them use ears bruce is still doing the monitor thing will stevens still in the monitor thing they got it cranked up there it's pretty amazing <laughs> i saw crowded house last night who were amazing they were so good and part of the guys were the bass player was using the ears, and uh, I think the drummer. No, the drummer was using a wedge. Wow, he was using a wedge, which was surprising. But I, I love it. Uh, I I think the in, the in ears or you know whatever suits you. I I like Future Sonics, um, but there's a, companies that are making them. But I think they they make a you know they make a huge difference. I mean, it had to have saved your hearing over the years. Certainly, but I'm still, you know, I have to wear. I have to have help. I'm not deaf, but I, I like being able, I want to hear what's out there. So I, you know, tried a couple hearing aid things. I use them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, we didn't think like, I didn't think about that stuff when I was younger and play with AC thirties and, and, and marshals behind me, like a knucklehead hitting and, you know, a, a symbol that's, uh, yeah, eh, well, I think we all go through that. Unfortunately, that's the <laughs> irony of life. <laughs> yeah. indeed. indeed. Well, we're getting to the end of the hour, yeah. so I always end the conversation with asking, "What was your first snare drum?" Uh, uh Rogers Dynasonic snare drum was my first. Nice. With the, remember the, the Dynasonic with the with the with the metal rod? Yeah, uh, yeah. Across this this the strand, that was it, man. Yeah. And how yeah. long did that stick around? Ah, oh, I, I, good while. I had it for, you know, all the way up till, uh, I until I got an, I think an acrylate or something like that. That's when I, you know, I mean, I saw those little aluminum type snare drums. I think I had it, and then, um, yeah, I started getting into snare. Like I have a lot of snare drums. I'm buying snare drums, so um, I even have one of Craviotti's first Craviotto's. Uh, he has he made a company they, everybody thinks it was solid but it was a company called select and i have one of those mm. that i will not part with that's that's really pretty groovy it's good but yeah that was that was my first and i remember cherishing later on i think i got a black beauty and that was like everybody wanted a black beauty man mm -hmm. it was yeah it was cool how do you cool. pick what drums go like on the road or to a session um well, I, I usually pick, uh, you know, I bring a couple snares with me when I go to a session. And, uh, um, but, you know, usually some of the places I work out, they got a real nice selection of drums. Gradwell has a great selection of drums. Uh, uh, Rob Hyman has this DW kit, this Bucks County, uh, Bucks County Drum Company set this beautiful jazz kit. Everybody seems to love that kit uh um and there's an old ludwig kit in there that's terrific so there's a nice selection so i guess it just depends on uh for me it's you know if i'm doing this the session guy thing i talk to the producers so what are you looking what are you looking for you know if, if it's a softer sound sometimes i'm going to that you know that ludwig kit because it has this you know, like you know uh 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 it's just unique I don't know. It's not it's analog thing going on with it. Mm. You know? Yeah. I know that my, my buddy, uh, Charlie Hall, was doing a uh, a project last week and I was with him and he was using those Ludwig kid drums and, from War on Drugs. And he, he was like, man, this kid's cool. It sounds great. So, uh, 
I like, I, you know, like I'm, I'd, I'd love to get a, a, my, some, if my old Rogers kit is floating out there, I'm trying to get a hold of that somewhere. Yeah. What happened to your Gretsch kit, the yellow Gretsch kit? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't. That's like really scary to say. Like, I don't know what happened. I probably like sold it for something stupid, you know, but traded it for something. And I got a deal like with, with the back, you know, the endorsement stuff changed over the years. I remember when Tama started you know i was a local guy in office and ben salem they they made me drums made me yellow drums and and for about five years that was just pretty unbelievable and uh um i think that was a time to somehow uh um I had a precarious living situation. So I think my Gretsch kit went with an old girlfriend somewhere and mm. probably sold them. Yeah, <laughs> that happens. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't real smart. Real smart. <laughs> if I would have thought, you know, like, ah, oh, that, that, that'd be real, a real valuable thing to have these days. But no, wasn't thinking the ignorance wasn't. of youth. Learn <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> God. Well, I appreciate you coming on, and I look oh, forward Mike, to catching the. I was totally honored that you asked. I, I, you know, you're doing such amazing things and educating drummers and playing. I see you play. You're a lovely player, man. So, thank you for having me, man. All right, that is it for this week's episode. As always, if you like the show and you haven't already, please give us a five-star rating and write a review wherever you're getting this show and drop some comments on the YouTube channel. Make sure you're subscribing there. Make sure you hit a notification bell so you don't miss any episodes. I need to hear from you. So if you have any listener questions or intro beats you'd like to submit, send them to drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. And until then, have a good week and we will see you in the next episode.